are kicking off episode 379 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Shipwrecks. It's from the surf band Surfer Rex off their album Strange Salvage. You can find them over at surferrex.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. You know, that's the website for the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. My name is Derek M. Cook and we have got a doozy of a show for you today. One might even say it's as big as a battleship. I am being joined by a friend of mine, somebody who hasn't been on the show in quite some time, David Schechter. He is the man behind monstrous movie music. He's an author. He's a film fan. He loves these movies. He contributes to a number of books and always talks about the film scores. And when we had him on the show many, many moons ago, the giant claw came up in conversation. Why? I I don't even remember at this point. But for whatever reason, that always stuck with me. And I thought I had to have David come back on the show to talk about this 1957 film classic. It's going to be a fun conversation. David and I really dig into the nitty gritty of this movie. It's not just a movie with a ridiculous looking monster. There is a lot to enjoy here. And David and I are going to break that down for you in the conversation that we're going to have here in a little bit. We also have a recording from last week from Jeff Pollier. He calls in a weird Wednesday report. He went to go see a movie at the Joy Cinema here in the Portland, Oregon area. Every Wednesday night, they do Weird Wednesday where they show some sort of weird movie. Usually it's a monster movie, and he got to see something really, really cool and called in about that. We also had a contribution from Jason Giaconetti the man behind the Bots, Bugs, and Babes podcast, where he played around of the Classic Five with his brother Luke Giaconetti from the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. So we have that. Also, my lovely wife, Brenda. Turns out that while I was getting ready to go to Monster Bash a few weeks back, she wanted to do her husband a solid, and she recorded a couple of episodes of Michael Dodd's Vault of Monster Collectibles. Now, I was going to play one of them last week, but I couldn't locate the files. And it wasn't because I deleted them. I just didn't remember how they were saved. It's been a few weeks since Monster Bash. There's been a lot going on in my life since then. In fact, when Brenda recorded those, she made a comment about how I was busy at work and she wanted to help out. And well, that's all changed. And yeah, we'll get into that later. But anyway, I found the files. So this week, you get an installment the Vault of Monster Collectibles. And as an aside, I did get an email from listener Lenny offering to help me track down these programs if they had actually been deleted. I very much appreciate you reaching out to me, sir. Fortunately, the vials have been located. Also, this past weekend was G-Fest, the big Godzilla kaiju convention that happens in Chicago. I have never been to G-Fest. I've always wanted to go But Mark Bailey was there. Mark Bailey is the man behind the New York City giant monster attack map. And he ran around with his recorder. Actually, it was his iPhone and spoke with a handful of people there, people who've listened to the show. So we have some recordings from G-Fest 2018 in this episode, too. This is one heck of an episode. Like I said, it's the size of a battleship. So why don't we go ahead and dive into it all right after this. with the atom brain. A motion picture shot full of thrills based on scientific facts described in leading national magazines. You'll be hypnotized. You'll be terrorized. You'll be paralyzed. See a dead man come from beyond the grave. See Columbia Pictures startling. 
Preacher with the Atom Brain. Hi, this is Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. How about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans... Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horrors Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. Oh, wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horrors Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. witnessing a biological chain reaction, a geometrical progression of deadly menace. It had started casually, insignificantly, as momentous events often do. Look there. Two points off the port bow. The giant behemoth, the fire-spitting monster predicted in the Bible, its core a mass of lethal radiation. Rising from the depths of time, its strength enormous, its gargantuan ferocity a threat to London, to the world itself. We must find a way of destroying this creature in one piece. Judging by the beast's size, I would say it was powerful enough to drive a battleship. Of course, its tremendous electric charge is what projects the radiation. That's what makes the creature so deadly. Well, have you any concrete suggestions? Yes. First, block off the Thames. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned 
and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky von Helsing. Listeners, it's been a while since I've had him on the show, but his CDs have been in constant rotation around here. David Schechter, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Thank you very, very much. It's, it's wonderful to be back, especially for such a special purpose. <laughs> you know, I've been sitting on this one. I've had people come to me over, well, I don't know how long it's been, asking about the giant claw. Are you going to talk about it? Can I talk about it? It's like, no, you know, David and I kind of talked about it a little bit. I really want to set that aside for him. So it's here, man. It's the size of a battleship. The giant claw is here. I'm so honored, you know. I, I almost can't put it into words uh, that I've been allowed this uh, incredible opportunity to discuss <laughs> this cinematic classic. I'm not the kind of person who likes to trash movies. I'm not a mystery science theater fan because a lot of those movies I think are really good. Right. And I don't like it when people are making fun, you know, just because, yeah, you look back and, you know, they had small budgets and this, that, and the other thing, and they made the movie in seven days. I'd like to see these critics make a movie in seven days. But the thing was, Columbia was making some decent monster movies at the time. So something definitely went wrong with a giant claw. You know, I, I went online, I wanted to see what other reviewers thought of the film and, and current re- reviewers, and there are a lot of YouTube videos that just tear this movie apart. I don't think it's warranted. I mean, I think there are some issues, sure, but there's a, a lot to really dig into and enjoy, and, and we'll get to that, we'll get to that, but there's something we do here on Monster Kid Radio with every guest now, and I think we probably did it with you before, we're going to do it again because I've got a whole new set of questions. The game is the Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here. Each card's got a question about classic monster movies. It's kind of an icebreaker conversation starter kind of game. Ready to play the classic five, David? Absolutely. All right. Card number one right off the top. What is your favorite classic 3D movie? Oh, my gosh. You've stumped me already. (laughs) I would say Creature from the Black Lagoon. This is why you and I are friends, man. Absolutely. Sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3D in Creature from the Black Lagoon. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passions. Making every man his mortal enemy, every woman's beauty his prey. Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D, starring Richard Carlson and Julie Adams. Every horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. A universal re-release rated G. My favorite memory was seeing it in a theater a few years ago with julie adams and julie was doing her book tour so she had been doing her book tour all over the united states and 90 percent of the places she went to they would be showing creature from the black lagoon so we were sitting uh together at the i think it was the egyptian theater in hollywood and the movie's ready to start and we have our 3d glasses in our laps and the curtain opens and i say to julie put on your 3D glasses. And she said, no, I've seen it in 3D enough. I'm going to watch it without the glasses this time. And and I said, but you're going to see two creatures and two Julies. And she said, I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was something like, oh, well. And she watched the entire movie without the 3D glasses on. And I think think it's possible she got twice as much enjoyment as the rest of us did. So I will always have a soft spot in my heart. Before that, I think it was probably, it came from outer space. I liked being out in the desert there with the 3D. 
But after seeing Julie watch the movie without the glasses, that one ascended to number one. I hope she didn't get a headache from watching it that way. That's amazing. Yeah, Creature from the Black Lagoon is my favorite film. And I think we talked about this when you were on the show before. I've got a serious crush on that woman. So to be able to watch the film with her, I mean, that's just fantastic. Fantastic. All right, card number two. What is your favorite Ray Harryhausen creation? I think... It's the giant turtle, Archelon, or whatever his name is, from one million years BC. Because you're just in the middle of the desert, and all of a sudden this giant turtle appears. And it's just so bizarre. He just wants to go back to the sea, and they're throwing rocks at him. And I always get so much joy. I mean, certainly, you know, I love the Emmer because of the personality and the Cyclops and all that. But there's something about that darn turtle. If that turtle was not in his uh, catalog of creatures, I think we would all be that much poorer because of it. I've asked people this question before, and nobody has brought up the turtle from One Million Years B.C. I I, I know. I knew you were going to say that, too. I think you said that with, like, every one of my questions last time. (laughs) See, that's why I like getting different voices and different people on the show, though, you know, it's going to make me want to go back and at least watch that sequence in the film, although it is a hammer film. So, you know, I'm sure there's lots more to enjoy as well. The turtle's only on there for like a few seconds. So how much time did they spend building that turtle? Just for a few seconds. Harry Howes and the, the amount of work he put into what we got is just amazing. That's why he's the master. Yep. All right. Card number three. Do you prefer Dwight Fry as Renfield or Fritz? Boy, that's a toss up. We have to go with Dwight Fry. I just, you know, he's Dwight Fry. What can I say? It's like So do you like him better as Renfield then? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty much what everybody else goes with as well. He, he has the more uh, defined arc. I mean, it, it's not a, yeah. a happy place that he ends up in, no. but, you know, he, he does go on a journey. It's not a happy place <laughs> he starts out in either, really. So. Well, this is true. This is true. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Card number four. What is your favorite man in an ape suit movie? That would have to be White Pongo. Only Okay. Yeah. One of my dreams is to someday see a restored print of White Pongo in a theater so I can appreciate it the way people probably didn't go to the theater all those years ago to not see it. I remember it used to like be advertised all the time at three thirty in the morning on TV, whatever, and it just sounded so neat, White Pongo. And, of course, when I finally saw it, you know, it's just your typical gorilla movie, only they bleached the suit. And I don't know what it is about White Pongo. I don't remember anything about the movie, only that there's a White Pongo in it. Unfortunately, that's my answer. I can't do any better than that. I don't think I've seen White Pongo, but it sounds like maybe I need to check it out at some point. Yeah. If I can get my hands on it. Yeah, exactly. I'll, uh, I'll see if I can find the copy somewhere. Or, or if there's a very old print of another Man in a Gorilla Suit movie that's kind of lost its dark tones, maybe that would suffice. <laughs> All right, final card. Question number five. If you, David, could swap places with any character from any classic monster movie, who would it be? This has nothing to do with um, sex, but I would swap with Jill Young so I could have Mighty Joe as my friend. I like that answer. I like that a lot. You know, when I wrote that question, I thought, well, this will be easy, but it tends to uh, 
stump a lot of people so that you came to came with it pretty quick at monster bash uh joshua kennedy was there and i asked him that question and we had to skip it and come back to it and i edited the episode to make it sound like he just came up with it right away but he struggled he finally came up with carl denham that's who he'd want to swap out with yeah i think i think he just panicked and just pulled that out of a hat he does run around with that top hat at all those conventions yeah anyway well that's the classic five david how do you feel i feel worn out I hope not too worn out. We got a whole movie to talk about. A movie as big as a battleship. Yeah, exactly. I just hope you didn't ask me any of those questions before and I gave different answers. When it comes to classic monster movies, you ask me what my favorite one is today and then ask me again in a week. It might, well, say second favorite because Creature's never going to go down the list. But still, you know, I'll change my mind next week about something. Just We love them all. You know, there's so many to enjoy. Mm-hmm. So much to enjoy. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of enjoying... <laughs> It's coming after me. Mitch. It is extraterrestrial. Comes from outer space. From some godforsaken antimatter galaxy millions and millions of light years from the earth atomic hydrogen weapons capable of wiping cities countries off the face of the earth are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies I enjoyed it quite a bit. How much of that enjoyment do you think comes from the fact that it's like under 80 minutes? Would you enjoy it as much if it was an hour and 40 minutes? If the ratio to actual footage to stock footage stayed the same, it might be a little taxing. Yeah. Because there's a lot of stock footage in this already. But the stock footage is enjoyable because it doesn't match the live footage. No, not at all. No, like a, you know, a, a... some sort of bomber takes off and we cut to a model airplane that looks nothing like it. The film's got some problems. <laughs> it's got some problems. Uh, came out in 1957, directed by Fred F. Sears, who I don't really know a heck of a lot about, but he did some of these lower budget films, right? Oh, yeah. I, it, what's amazing about the picture is, you know, I was looking through the main actors and the director and the producer, and you realize, you know, their history in the genre you sit there and go, wow, these are these are like heavyweights there. So we should really have a brilliant movie here. Sears did uh, The Giant Claw, Night the World Exploded, uh, Earth vs. the Flying Sources, of course, The Werewolf, which is a good movie. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, he, you know, he did a lot of like teen movies too, Don't Knock the Rock and Teenage Crime Wave, Rock Around the Clock. 
he definitely, you know, was good at doing some of these pictures. And Katzman, you know, the producer, of course, did a whole bunch of these too. Some of the same movies, Creature with the Atom Brain, It Came from Beneath the Sea, Zombies of Morotau, Night the World Exploded. What a pedigree here. And one thing I didn't know, and again, since I'm, I consulted the IMDb, is you don't know how much is true on there, but you hope that at some point Tom Weaver got in there and fixed it up. It said that Sears did the narration on the giant claw, the night the world exploded, and the werewolf. I did not know that. Huh. I've been meaning to watch the werewolf again anyway. I'll go back and I'll watch that and pay attention to the voice but to see if it's the same person, but fascinating. I like that movie a lot. I don't want to get off the giant claw, but I used to like going up to um, uh, Big Bear in San Bernardino Mountains and uh, they have the dam up there where the werewolf meets his end and all that kind of stuff. And just being in the in the old town, I think it's Big Bear Lake, and you kind of see some of the buildings, you know, that were in the werewolf. And it's just kind of exciting. That's a fun little film. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll just have to set that one aside for the next time you come on. Uh. So, so we'll save that one for David. You talk about the people that are involved, and we mentioned the director and the producer. Jeff Morrow. He was in one of the creature films. Uh, he's done so, so of course he's high on my list of people because I, I, I really enjoy him in The Creature Walks Among Us. He was in This Island Earth. He was in Kronos. He's done so many of these excellent genre films. Absolutely. And, and he takes this one so seriously as well through the entire film. I never got the impression that he was acting like he was in a movie that will eventually be derided by thousands of critics. Yeah, I always enjoy him. And, you know, he, he and Rex Reason were like perfect because they had those voices that just stood out. Oh, yeah, they played ultra serious people. I never got to meet Jeff. I wish I had. I think I met his, was it his wife? I think it was his wife at a convention. And she was sitting there and there was a long line of people. Rex Reason was next to her. And there was a long line of people there to meet Rex. And nobody was lined up to meet. I forget her name. I have to look it up. And she just kind of called out to the crowd. Doesn't anyone want to talk to me? And I thought that was just so heartbreaking. So I went up and talked to her and he had died, I think something like 1993. And this was probably eight, nine years after that. It was just very, very sad. She was a very sweet lady, very smart lady. And when I got home, I looked her up and she was a screenwriter and everything. And I had no idea. I thought she was just the widow of him and was just trying to make a little money. But no, she worked in Hollywood too. She probably had amazing stories to tell. Wow. Trying to find some information about her right now. And uh, was it Anna Morrow? I think that was it, yeah. Well, that's that's too bad. You know, I always feel bad when I go to a convention and there are celebrity guests just sitting there and nobody's really interacting with them and that sort of thing. And, and, and it kind of bums me out because these are people that work so hard to, to get there to be to the convention and yeah. hopefully meet some fans. Well, I'm glad you did that. That's, that's good. Yeah. I wish I had known more about her at the time. And, you know, I probably stood up and said, Hey, you need to talk to her, talk to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing about Jeff Morrow, the, the famous story supposedly is that he did not see what the special effects bird. So when he went to the premiere or the first time he saw the picture, the audience was laughing when they saw the titular monster, so to speak, and he kind of like snuck out early and kind of either crouched down or crawled out or whatever out of embarrassment. And then I've read a lot of things where people are trying to contradict that 
by saying, no, he would have known this, that, and the other thing, and he would have seen it somehow during the making of the movie. Well, when I watched the movie a couple of times over the past week, when I knew we were going to do this, I kind of specifically watched the movie from that standpoint to see if indeed he might have known what the monster looked like. And this was just a story he told. But it appears like he probably was right, because there's there's a scene where they're showing the photos that were taken by the weather balloon of the bird. And those are just cutaways of the bird. You don't see any of the people. You don't see Jeff or Mara or anyone else in the cast actually in the same shot with that. Uh, when the bird was featured in rear projection shots, none of those rear projection shots were with Jeff. There were some with people who jumped out of the airplane, that kind of stuff. That would have been second unit director footage, and Rex probably had nothing to do with that. I don't think he's in any rear projection shots. Uh, the only thing they do in one of the scenes is they mention an overgrown buzzard, but we don't even necessarily know if that dialogue, I think, was spoken or if it was looped, because I don't think you can see the person saying it. But even if you say overgrown buzzard, that doesn't connote the quality of the overgrown buzzard. <laughs> so I still believe that it's quite possible that he didn't know exactly what it would look like. And certainly the posters were um, not showing the actual footage or the actual image of the bird. The rumor there is that, you know, they deliberately didn't show it because they didn't think people would come to the movie. That's believable. The one thing that is a mystery is I would have thought the trailer, which shows the bird, would have come out, but, you know, maybe Jeff didn't see the trailer, or maybe it came out after. I have no idea. I had heard that story as well, that, that almost none of the actors really knew what it was going to look like because it hadn't been done yet. And there's the rumor that Harryhausen might have been considered, and then for budget reasons, they just couldn't do it. I never see any of the main actors interact with the with the creature. Like you said, you, you never see him on screen at the same time. And anytime you really see the creature doing anything anyway, it's usually with a model or some sort of rear projection effect. Mm -hmm. So I, I totally believe that, or, or I could believe that that's the case. Uh, I, I have heard that Morrow did sneak out of the theater either halfway through the film or, or even afterwards. I've, I've read both accounts and that he went home and just drank himself to sleep that night <laughs> because it was, but I, again, I don't know how true that part of it is. I don't know enough about what his life was like to, to, to feel like I can confidently say one way or the other. I feel like throughout the film, he is so earnest. He is doing his best to put this thing over and I bought it. And that's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed this film, both him and Mara Carday or Corday, excuse me, Mira Corday, both are selling it. And nobody acts like this is a giant marionette with a turkey neck. You know, nobody's <laughs> really acting that way. And, and I respect the film for that. You know, it would almost be fun if somebody go in there and redo the film, somebody who has a lot of free time and money, put in a fabulous monster, and would our opinion of the acting and the story and everything change a lot? I mean, there are definitely some goofy lines in the movie. I think it has more bizarre lines of dialogue than pretty much any picture. It almost sounds like they were trying to have every line be uh, one of those uh, phrases that catches on with the public, you know, kind of like uh, um, make my day or something like that. It's like all of these lines seem to be elevated in importance, maybe thinking people would walk out of the theater spouting these things. So there's definitely a surfeit of lines that are not the way no people normally talk. 
You know, <laughs> they're not going for realism here. They're going for heightened realism. What is what is that poem that he <laughs> that he reads on the plane? <laughs> um, this is Jeff Morrow making a move on Mara. He says, "Be plain in dress and sober in your diet. In short, my dearie, kiss me and be quiet." Yeah, it's it. It made sure it reminded us that it was uh, made in the 50s, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, that said, I still really enjoyed Mara's performance. Uh, I felt like her character does seem to be given a little bit more to do, mm-hmm. which I respect. I mean, it's it's hard sometimes with some of these movies that we love to find a, a woman with agency and and not really just kind of being in the background. I do like that. She does take a little bit of control here and there. And a few times I felt like she was even an equal to the Jeff Morrow character. And I got to ask you to do me a big favor, David. I know that you're friends with Julie Adams and I've got a massive crush on her, but please don't tell her that I am kind of developing a crush on Mara Corday as well. I won't do that. I mean, I hear Mara is still, she's still alive and out there, but she's kind of um, hidden herself away from the public. I was in touch with her probably about, 15, 20 years ago. And oh. she's had a website for a long time that just never seemed to work. I was going to order some photos and it never seemed to work. And I, I ended up writing to her a few times and she would write back to me. And then she kind of vanished, which is too bad. I, I She would do wonderfully at, at one of these shows because Black Scorpion, you know, the giant claw, uh, Tarantula. I mean, Tarantula alone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, she's a major major player in this genre. She was in some good westerns too mm-hmm. that, I, that I really like. Yeah, I think she does a good job. And Columbia, you know, did the same kind of thing with It Came From Beneath the Sea 2 years earlier where Fet Domer, however you pronounce her name, she played a scientist. So, mm-hmm. I think Mara is much more believable as a scientist. And she's handling either a ruler or a slide ruler at one point. And I was thoroughly convinced she handled it just as well as my math teacher did in eighth grade. <laughs> I mean, there are times when she seems more comfortable with the stuff that Jeff Morrow does. Jeff Morrow does have to spout off quite a bit about, well, whatever fake science they were trying to throw at us. But no, she does seem to be pretty comfortable with everything. And, and you know, again, I, I kind of respond to that. I, I am always excited when I find an atypical female character in a lot of these movies. That's why I like Julie Adams so much in Creature from the Black Lagoon. You know, her interactions at the beginning of the movie. She's an ichthyologist, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're supposed to get married, but he can't afford me. I mean, that that's, I mean, that, that's not a woman just kind of looking for her MRS degree. You know, that that's a... You know, a, a very know, self-driven person, and I really appreciate that, and I got that from Mara Day here, and I get that from her in Black Scorpion, too. I guess as much as they can, they help me with the believability. Do you find the Black Scorpion to be more believable than the Giant Claw? Ooh, man, you know, that's a tough call. Yeah, I'm going to say yes. I mean, I love the Black Scorpion, although I haven't watched it in a while. I need to break out that Blu-ray that came out a while back. Yeah, well, it's creepy, you know, the... yeah. But what's interesting to me, if you don't mind me going off on a tangent here, is... No, no, please. As silly, I think when you're discussing the giant claw, you're already in a tangent, aren't you? Kind of. <laughs> yeah. I remember this being one of the scarier movies that I saw as a kid. The giant claw? Which is, yeah. Okay. Which is kind of hysterical from today's perspective, being older, looking back. But I was kind of thinking about why that was so. And one of the reasons is... This giant claw creature, 
he just comes out of the sky from nowhere. It doesn't matter where you are, anywhere in the world, and he just comes down and grabs you like he does to Pierre. Mm -hmm. And I guess when you're watching the movie for the first time, especially if you're a little kid, and you only see this blurry little image with something moving on it, which I guess is the claw or maybe maybe the tuft of hair on its head. I don't know. But you don't really know what it is, but you know that it kills people and just comes out of nowhere. And to me, that was very scary. It was kind of like Rodan, where it swoops down on the, uh, the couple that just got married and they're gone. Mm -hmm. That was very terrifying to me as a kid because you're kind of outside and you're minding your own business. And all of a sudden this thing comes, comes from, as I say, out of nowhere and kills you. And I found that very frightening, obviously. The other reason I think it's so scary, or at least it was to me back then, is for whatever reason, and the reason is plot convenience, this bird and Mitch are almost like an item. I mean, they're together more than, than Mitch and Mara's character are. So wherever Mitch is, the bird just happens to show up. You know, I love when he's talking to her in the their like apartment in New York, and they just look out the window, and there's the giant claw. <laughs> you know, when they're driving away from the teenagers, and there's the claw. Whenever they're up in a plane, there's the claw. So it's kind of like it's following him around everywhere. You can't get away from this claw. Which is another scary element. I mean, it's it's just there. Sure. And if you're relating to his character, you know, in the movie, he's that clause is following you all the time. You know, I think a better solution to getting rid of the bird instead of building that whatever that Mason thing is that helps destroy it. They should have shot uh, Jeff's character into outer space and the bird would have probably just followed it out there. True. Right. Just getting yeah. <laughs> but but it's funny because the two other movies that I really remember scaring me as a kid were The Monster of Piedras Blancas Ooh. and The Giant Behemoth. Oh. And in both of those pictures, a little a child is killed. So I think that's what really hit me, because you didn't see kids dying that much. And, you know, even in Frankenstein, they didn't show that, at least when we saw the movie. Mm -hmm. So other than children getting killed, uh, <laughs> The Giant Claw scared me the most. That, that in itself is frightening. Huh. Yeah. How do you respond to that? You just don't. The connection, I was going to ask you about the connection to Mitch because it does seem to just appear and almost kind of towards the end of the film, it almost feels kind of de regard. It just, just happens and yeah. nobody seems to really react or, or put it together that this is a problem or, or a pattern. It just kind of happens. He's just there and you got me stuck in this kind of, you know, head cannon. What if? <laughs> What if there's something special about Mitch and why couldn't they have exploited that instead of making up this this weird science that really the person who did it best was Jack Arnold putting the science lessons into his films. I mean, he, he was the master at it. And I always kind of roll my eyes a little bit when I hear another film not directed by Jack Arnold trying to insert some sort of scientific lesson or, or facts about how these things are working. So with all this talk about matter and antimatter and we're going to throw everything – if they had just used Mitch. You know, it just came to me now. Jeff had kind of a very pronounced nose that could be mistaken for a beak. <laughs> it could have been that, that the claw thought Mitch was a long lost love or something. I don't know if that's a what if I want to imagine, actually, now that I think. 
<laughs> yeah, now, probably every time you watch the movie and you see him, you're, I've, I've wrecked it for you. I think I've wrecked it for me. <laughs> and you also wonder why are any of the characters hanging around Mitch for the second half of the movie? They should already have noted the connection. You know, if you don't want to encounter the bird, keep keep your distance from Mitch. Yes, it's all Mitch's fault. Exactly. And the other thing is, where is the bird, this giant bird, where is it hiding when people don't see it? You know, like for the first half of the movie. I mean, is there a, a giant hole in a giant tree somewhere? Or is it seven miles up on some giant telephone line just perched up there too far away from... Where do you, where do you, I guess you hide in French, French Canadian territory. Is that, is that it? Sure. <laughs> I don't know where you go. Cause it, you would think something like this would be hard to uh, hide. Like where you, you can't really lose track of it. Can't, well, I guess it doesn't show up on radar, but that, that's not really enough. No, it's, <laughs> it's gotta be out there somewhere. Maybe that's part of what made it scary as a kid is the fact that something so humongous can still just be right out there ready to swoop down on you. Right. I don't know. Right. So when you saw this as a kid, was it on television? Yeah. I would have been probably about um, maybe eight, ten years old, something like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it affected me. What can I say? It made me what I am today. Oh, oh yeah? Is this, this what did it for you? <laughs> yeah. It's funny. In, wa- in watching it today and really scrutinizing it, because, you know, I have to talk about it, is – when you're going to make fun of something a little bit, you want to make sure that you get the facts right. You don't want to just kind of poke fun at something just for the sake of making a joke if it's not accurate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was just scrutinizing this. It's nothing against the director, the producer, the actors, or even the screenwriter. You know from the very beginning that you're in for an interesting tale. They have that, you know, globe in the beginning that's spinning. And a lot of these movies show the earth. You know, there was no attempt to make this look like the actual Earth. They obviously didn't have the budget for that. So somebody had some Play-Doh and they made an Earth and it's got like the borders of the states on it. Because, you know, if you do go out in a satellite and take a picture of the Earth, you can see where New Jersey ends and New York begins and, you know, Connecticut and all that stuff. But I was looking at the giant clay Earth and there's some kind of giant wart that... It seems to be either in Wisconsin or near Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I would love it if next time you watch the movie, you get back to me and let me know what that is. Huh. Okay. Yeah, it's like a big, giant thing that sticks out in Wisconsin. And I have no idea what that is. And then instead of the Rocky Mountains, we have some ranges on the West Coast. And they look like somebody, they actually look like somebody scratched the United States with a giant claw which I find very interesting. I was going to ask you about that since we're talking about the globe. Do you think that was on purpose? I have no idea. Because it, it's very distinctly, yeah, it looks like you know a, th- a three-talon claw just came through and scratched Those the top are, of the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that was you know, an inside joke or something. Uh, or maybe they dropped the globe on the floor and didn't have time to fix it. I really don't know. I, I wonder if that was made by this, you know, Mexican special effects unit as well. I do want to talk about that. Now, do you think or do you know if there's any truth to the rumor that they originally talked about getting Harryhausen involved? I never asked Ray that question. Okay. And I do not know at all. I mean, that it could have been as much as, hey, do you think we can get Ray? Are you kidding? He's not going to do this picture. It makes sense from the standpoint 
that he worked on, you know, these other Katzman movies. Mm-hmm. And this was 1957, whereas, you know, he already did Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, which was 56, and it came from Beneath the Sea, 55. So, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Whether they asked him or thought about it, who knows? Yeah, I don't think he would have enjoyed that because so many of the shots would have been, wa- you know, with wires in, for an elevated bird. That would have been really expensive, having to do, you know, something on aerial braces. Yeah, it's true. I, I don't know anything about the people who actually did do the special effects of the giant bird or the giant claw. It's a Mexican outfit, which I'm sure they just got cheap, but I don't know anything else about anything they might have done yep. that made <laughs> them think that it was a good idea to go there. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to see some of the prototypes that didn't pass the test? Well, they said, no, no, this this is too goofy. We can't go with this. <laughs> or or here, I just came up with another theory. Maybe they had like 10 different versions of the bird, and they went through them, and they stacked them in order of worst to best, and at some point somebody flipped the pile, and they said the top one is the one we're going with. It's absurd, and, it, and I can see why this movie gets so much flack. I, I like to look at the positive aspects of these things when I – you know, talk about them on the show and, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And, and I do really enjoy the movie. I mean, I think there's a lot to really enjoy, especially when it comes to our, our lead actors. Uh, the music, because you have such a deep interest and knowledge in film scores, especially film scores like these that most people in business don't really pay attention to. What are your thoughts on the music here? I have two kind of opposing opinions. On the one hand, this film was scored the way the other Columbia science fiction sc- scores of the time were the Harryhausen pictures, um, Zombies of Morotau, The Werewolf, and others of that ilk, where they used the music library of Columbia, so they re-recorded music from previous Columbia movies, and then they combined it with original music written by the musical director, Misha Bakalenikov. Mm-hmm. So in The Giant Claw... There's music from Mario Tedesco's Dangerous Business. I, I don't know if that's the working title or if it was the, the release version, but I know when the when the bird picks up the model train, that's Evil Deed, a cue written by Max Steiner for The Violent Men. Oh, okay. And there's music by George Dooning, a lot of Dooning music, because he was uh, the Columbia's main writer back in the 40s and 50s, so there's a lot of his music in the library. So there's music from... No Sad Songs for Me, I'm trying to think, uh, Nightfall, all sorts of film noirs and adventures, things like that. And Bakalenikov wrote the original music. Well, Bakalenikov occasionally wrote some some good pieces of music. He wasn't a brilliant composer, but if he's doing something simple, he did a a good job. So some of his music for uh, 20 Million Miles to Earth is downright perfect, and he wrote really scary out there music for it came from beneath the sea and for some of these other Colombian movies the giant claw really stands out though for some reason if you listen to what presumably we would call the main title it almost sounds like it was improvised music of try to play the most awful ear piercing sounds you can come up with and he did that so i i can't recreate the music accurately but it's it's kind of something like uh, it's it's ear splitting (laughs) exactly headache inducing so on the one hand this is possibly the worst score i've ever heard in my life and on the other hand maybe it's his attempt at creating 
total horror in order to make this marionette bird seem scarier than it is? I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into this. Hmm. It's not one of the great scores by any stretch of the imagination. On the other hand, it does perfectly fit the movie in certain ways. Yeah. My thought is that it feels very – somebody told somebody to go make music for uh, a 1950s monster movie. And that's about all the direction they got. Mm -hmm. It it feels very prototypical of that kind of music, I guess stereotypical – uh, if he's thought stereotypically about what that kind of music is supposed to sound like. I'm doing a bunch of air quotes here, which is great for an audio show. But but it does have that kind of, okay, go make the music, and that's about all they were given. I, I think the ear-splitting opening titles theme, I guess. Uh-huh. Theme. Um, it does kind of put you on edge a little bit. And the movie does seem to hold on to this serious monster, well, as serious as you can be, monster movie until it actually is revealed on screen. So you've got the music, you've got the performances, you've got the mystery of what the heck is going on. You've got the government being anxious about it. I mean, I feel every all these elements are adding up to yep. what could be an incredible monster movie. And Well, it's kind of like them until finally, yeah. you know, but when you see the ants in them, you know, you can still believe that they're giant ants and, right. and that kind of stuff. And there is that claw. I mean, the best part about the movie, I think, is the claw. That closing image of the claw is a great one. And, yes. you know, the best shot in the picture, too bad they waited till the end of the movie, but the opening has that graphic of the, of the claw there. And they are, were obviously hiding the monster, you know, which even if it was a brilliantly created monster, you'd still want to hide it. So showing the claw in there is good. And, and, and I love the, even though it's an obvious matte painting, or it's not even a matte painting, it's just a painting of the claw in the field up in, you know, after it goes after Pierre, is kind of neat and spooky. I don't know how anyone missed that giant claw out in that field, but it's kind of cool. Maybe that's the issue is that they showed it way too much. If they hadn't shown it as much as they had, as often as they had, maybe the movie would have a little bit more impact. The old trick is if you want to hide the monster, shoot it and have it all take place at night in the rain. So you really can't make out too many details, but then I suppose that adds a bunch of other... It would have been nonstop rain. Yeah, (laughs) rain all the time. Just because we see it so often. Yeah, one of the scenes I like is when they're looking at the, the photos that were taken by the balloons... And, you know, the first one has nothing in it, and then you see this little bird in the background, and then you see the bird close up, and then they cut to the actors, and, like, they're, you know, gasping, whatever, when they see the thing. But immediately when they show the photo of the bird, I forget which which um, military mind says, shut it off. Uh, we got to keep this secret. Can't let the public know about it. Well, there's only five people in the room. It's a top secret room. Nobody can get in there. But it's almost like they didn't want to show us or they didn't want to have too much interaction between the characters and the bird at that point. But you see the thing for like a half a second. He says, kill the projector. It's like, no, the audience, you know, back then you couldn't freeze it, you know, on your on your DVD player. Yeah, Yeah, I do kind of like that. It, It would have been interesting to know what was on their mind. Did they get any previews of what the bird would look like? And did any of the script get rewritten or the, or the way they cut it to try to, I, I have no idea. I'm just kind of, you know, trying to explain the film is difficult because you're, you're right on the one hand, it's a pretty serious movie with a pretty unserious monster. I'm trying to think of what other pictures fit that category where if only 
they had a better monster, we would have a really solid movie. I mean, the ones that we always talk about, the, the creature films, uh, Black Scorpion, uh, even some of the other films from this outfit, Creature with the Atom Brain is fantastic. I, I don't know. I mean, this really seems to be the anomaly here when it comes to this kind of picture. Or maybe those few shots in the giant behemoth, you know, when they didn't do the stop motion and you have that paper mache head. Hmm. Okay. Theory. But even there, by that point, we've already seen some good shots of the monster. So, you know, we can kind of get past the bad shots. Because there are some really nice effect shots in the giant behemoth. There, there really are. I, you know, I, I think maybe, let's see. I'm trying to remember the name of the movie. It's from the 60s, and it's a giant ape kind of thing that's got not just a terrible monster, but an inconsistent monster, depending on what part of the film you're watching. It changes design slightly. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, the Mighty Gorga. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen that one. Oh, boy. It's um, it's a movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which I've been told that every time I describe a movie like that, everybody really wants to see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 uh it's a movie but yeah i can't think of anything that does this blatantly that that has a monster that just torpedoes any kind of quote-unquote believability and here we are talking about the believability of a monster movie exactly. but you know thing, we take these things seriously that's that's important stuff yeah. well the thing about the the monster is it's not just like one or two problems with it. It's pretty much everything. You know, why give it flaring nostrils? Why give it that silly sound? Why give it a tuft on its head? You know, how does the bird trim its hair? Because why is it as long as it is, but not like really long? I mean, does it does it molt? You know, is there this giant bird hair in space just floating around you know why does it have this ridiculous bulging eyes why does it have that it's like they weren't close to coming up with something usable i kind of like the flaring nostrils just because it was unique it's something i didn't expect to see because i really expected given the quality of the quote-unquote animation of the monster I, I didn't expect there to be any movement in that part of the creature design so i liked that i didn't need to see close-ups of it all the time yeah but, but, you know, just once or twice would have been nice. Uh, but the tuft of hair, I mean, it just it seems like an odd mishmash of ideas. I, I really would like to know what the actors were told, like you were saying. React to this. Well, what are we reacting to? Well, let me tell you. You know, did you give what were they told to imagine? Because it's what they're imagining. I can't imagine it looked anything like that in their head. Well, you know, the, what's, what's the British movie with the giant eagle that comes to life? Because you can even have an eagle that's really scary as a monster. Uh, do you know the one I'm talking about? You're talking about is it Night of the Eagle? Yeah, yeah, that's right. If they had envisioned a, you know, a giant eagle, and I think somebody mentions, I think it kind of looks like an eagle on some of the posters, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, they do refer to it as that, what was it, overgrown buzzard or something like that in the picture. They call it a buzzard a few times. That's as big as a battleship. And that's the, why is battleship the, the unit of measure here? Exactly. And supposedly there are all these drinking games and <laughs> that you and one of them is every time you hear the word battleship, you know, you have a drink or you could do every time you see the wires on the monster. But they're not as easy to see as I think people claim. If I were to do a drinking game and I really wanted to get drunk, I would go with every time Morris Ankrum calls Jeff Morrow his character, either a boy or especially son, mm-hmm. that would be. He calls him son all the time. I'm not really sure why. I think maybe it's to kind of let people know that this younger generation 
they're not all like those rowdy teens in the hot rod, that there's some good ones too. But I think as an actor, Ankrum was like maybe only about 10 years older than the boy, Jeff Morrow. But he calls him son all the time. There's kind of that avuncular uncle kind of relationship there. It sounds like they're trying to let us know that, you know, all of humanity will get together in order to fight this horror or something. It's, it's part of the charm of the movie, I think. The takeaway that I got from the, the way he talks to Mitch at first feels very dismissive. You're not in the military. You're just a civilian. Yeah. You know, if you were a civilian, I'd bust you for this and that and all, all this other. So I, I got a little bit of this kind of talking down to vibe. But I could see that as the movie continues. You're right. Because it does continue the, the way he refers to him. It's, it never stops, even though clearly Mitch did see a UFO and, and did see this thing. And hmm. I've never seen the screenplay, any of the versions. It'll be interesting to know yeah. if that's exactly what was written there. Or, you know, maybe it had other things and he threw that in, or maybe he just kind of winged some of it. You know, because if you actually compare what was written in the screenplay, assuming you have the actual shooting script with what's in the movies, there's lots of little differences in there. Uh, I have a... What's interesting about the script to me is, as I said earlier, it's, it's not realistic movie dialogue, which almost sounds like, you know, what are you talking about, realistic movie? Realistic movie dialogue is dialogue that nobody actually speaks but it sounds like if we could speak in a in a really uh, heightened um a way that focuses on what it is we're trying to say unlike what i'm doing right now uh <laughs> you know every line is is very compact and very clever and it gets to the point the giant claw almost seems to be veering into poetry in a sense where nothing is said the way a movie person would normally say it, and certainly not the way a normal human being would say it. It's meant to have some different life to it. It's almost like poetry where you would not say, I'm going to the door. They'd say, my darling, departation time is now, or something that's just so bizarre. And it adds to that world that the giant claw exists in, which is unlike any other science fiction movie world there there is a difference between you know real dialogue and, and film dialogue and in a smartly made film every piece of dialogue is designed to help move the story along or do character and, and that sort of thing it's artificial you know on some levels and i think we accept that when we watch a movie there is something about the giant claw when you keep saying poetry we're not just talking about you know kiss me and keep quiet there there is a, a sense of offbeat lyricism yeah to uh, the way a lot of the dialogue is delivered mm-hmm uh, and I love the way it comes out of Jeff Morrow's mouth. <laughs> I love the way Morrow Corday, or Corday speaks it. I, I, I love their interactions together. I mean, I think that to me is the saving grace of this film. Like I said, I always try to find something positive and I just love those two together and their chemistry together and the way they interact and speak with each other. I'm with you on that a hundred percent because it is a really enjoyable movie. And obviously we're talking about when you mention the giant, if we're playing that psychiatric game where, you know, I say black, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? You know, you say white, I say up to you, say down. I say giant claw, you say giant marionette turkey bird. Because that's just, you know, that's what dominates. But the other stuff is enjoyable for many other ways. You know, it's almost like Mitch was, he didn't want to be, and I'm not even sure what he is. He's like a genius in a thousand different scientific fields, like electrical engineering and Masonic atomic physics. I have no idea. He can do anything. But I think 
he wanted to be a poet in life and he wasn't able to make a living at that. So he's a poet throughout the movie. And, you know, I think next time I watch it, I'm going to picture him as this kind of person who's trying to get in touch with his artistic side. Because it is amazing dialogue, and I don't know, you know, I've seen a lot of movies written by the, the people credited with writing this, and I'm not familiar with dialogue like this consistently throughout a movie. Speaking of credits, one thing I find very interesting, and I don't know if it's accurate, two of the three people credited with doing the special effects, and one of them is supposedly not credited, one of them, this was the last movie they ever worked on, and another one, it was the second to last movie they ever worked on. So maybe... <laughs> Maybe they did another movie because The Claw hadn't been released to that point, And then once it came out, it killed that career. I don't know. Yeah, everybody's like, yeah, I don't know about this. Yeah, <laughs> But, you know, I was just thinking, I'm looking at Mara's credits. And I said, you know, Tarantula, Black Square being the giant claw. Wouldn't it be great if Universal and Columbia had gotten together and they do Tarantula versus the giant claw or something like that? I'd be all over that. I'd be all over that. I did find, like I said earlier, I was on YouTube trying to find other reviews and thoughts on this film. And I did find that somebody did like a little fan drawn animation in which Rodan and the giant claw fight. Uh-huh. And I thought that was kind of that was kind of fun, but yeah, I would love to see the giant claw get a little bit more screen time and go at it with like the the tarantula. That'd be fun, or or a black scorpion. Sure, and you know the claw would pick up one of these monsters and drop it somewhere else, and it would have been like Sharknado in the nineteen fifties. All of a sudden, <laughs> giant spiders are dropping on you from the sky. I one, love it. I one love thing, it. You mentioned Rodan, and the thing about Rodan is, although he does flap, especially you know during the end when he dies. He's treated like a supersonic jet. I mean, he has a contrail when he's flying, which I love. You know, are those yeah, are those yeah. Rodan farts or something? I could never figure out why he was making those contrails. But he looks basically like a jet, a jet plane. Well, the giant claw flaps. And if you watch when he turns, he doesn't like glide or he doesn't flap into a turn. He just rotates like he's on a record player, which I really enjoy. Uh, but Picturing this giant bird flapping through the vacuum of space where you need air molecules to push off of is uh, kind of an interesting thing to ponder. Yeah. No, you're right. What would be its motive? How would it propel itself? And in even a, if, there were, hmm. if there were air in outer space, the way he flaps so slowly, it would only move him up and down like a helicopter. I have no idea how he can go at supersonic speeds, but he's, he's a very talented claw. Yeah, And can I mention one other thing, which, yes, I, which please. I, I remember because I had a kind of a real interest in math as a kid and everything. I had like a science background. The one thing that stood out as being not believable to me, believe it or not, there was only one thing when I was little. And it's this really impressive moment when they're on the plane and uh, Jeff Morrow's character figures out these random locations for attacks are actually part of this outgoing spiral you know and i remember going wow that's really cool and then i thought wait a second if you take any series of dots and you go out in kind of outward from that it doesn't matter where you put those dots you could put them in a straight line you could put them in a random line you could make a spiral to connect those regardless any dots on a piece of paper, you can make a spiral out of it simply because a spiral covers all all the marks on an, a y-axis and an x-axis. And any dot you put is going to be on a y-axis or an x-axis. So it actually 
it's kind of neat from a visual, it's visually impressive. But logically, you know, it didn't have to be a spiral. It could have been any random line. Like I say, Mitch was basically a poet faking it to seem like he was a scientist. Leave the math and the numbers to Sally, Mitch. This whole spiral thing. Yeah, it's convenient for the film, but come on. (laughs) There is one sequence in this film that I really enjoy. And we talked about the, the film strip reveal, the picture reveal. And that's a great sequence. But I also like towards the end of the movie when Mitch and Sally... And uh, the other person that's with them, I forget who, but somebody from the military, they're trying all these different things and they keep failing. And, yeah. and I, I love that bit. I mean, there's the narration, you know, whatever, but I love it. And I love the way the shots are constructed. And, and there's one shot in particular where you've got the two glass tubes with the Jacob's Ladder electricity going up. And you've got the two glass tubes and each one of the characters is either one right in the middle and then the other two are off to the side. So you've got character, tube, character, tube, character. And I just, something about that shot really caught my imagination and that, that whole lab bit anyway is great. But that in particular, I really enjoyed. I'll have to watch that, that again. That's, I liked the sequence. What I didn't understand is it's almost like if they knew that when it worked, the lab would blow up. They needed to have built maybe some some protection there because, you know, they all think that because the thing blew up, it was a failure. You know, I actually like the sequence where he tells – because he gets really poetic during their life. He could just say – he could come to the point and say, it worked. Let's get it on the plane. But instead, he draws it out for like three or four minutes to create uh, suspense and everything. I, I just like Mitch. You know, he was dropped into this picture from some other universe – and everyone else has to deal with him, with his, as I say, his poetic sensibilities and everything. There's just something cool about Mitch. And I think if we could all talk the way he did, I think the world would be a much better place. So watch the movie and study Mitch's dialogue. Work that into your everyday uh, conversation. Yeah. I think, I think that's a great idea. It would be hard because, you know, you really have to use your brain and, and consult the classics, Shakespeare, Dickens and everything. He's a very learned man. I, I just watched it, the end of it again today. And one of the thing that really jumped out at me, which hadn't before, is, you know, this bird has killed, like, apparently thousands of people around the world. And, you know, it got egg yolk all over Canada. When they, <laughs> But when they finally kill it, the general and he, he's not the inspector general. Who is he? I forget. The other military guy. They start to laugh at the end of the movie. And... I'm thinking, like, if the police were out, you know, and and there's some sniper out there shooting at people, and they finally kill him, do you generally laugh? Um, Don't you go, don't you, like, you know, hug each other or give each other a congratulatory, or you just collapse in exhaustion, uh, you know, and, but laughing because you killed this giant bird just seems... It actually, it's kind of makes it sad. I am very sad when the bird is killed. Just like, I think one of the saddest moments in the picture is when they shoot his egg. This thing flew like a billion light years to get here. It, you know, drops this giant egg and they shoot it. And he gets to see albumin and yolk, which was going to be the giant claw junior, the sequel, basically, 
yeah. got destroyed. He looks at the egg, and I actually feel bad for the, the marionette puppet bird. And maybe, despite all the laughing and joking about this thing looking so ridiculous, there is that one moment of real compassion, because I had that same feeling, too. Now, granted, I'm an animal lover myself. I mean, you, you have a history with dogs as well, so maybe that's part of what's kind of pulling at us a little bit. But there's something about this thing just kind of showed up. Did it come here out of malice or, or did it accidentally get here? Did it get lost? And I mean, these are, that's it's, it's young. I mean, it's, just, yeah, I always feel bad when the monster gets it at the end anyway, but I did feel kind of bummed out by this one, especially with the laughing, the laughing is you're right. Yeah. And it, you know, it makes you wonder, like had the bird been done better there probably would have been pathos. You know, it's kind of like when the, the beast from 20,000 Fathoms dies in the um, yeah. in the roller coaster. That's very sad with the death throes. The fact that a creature this ridiculous, every time I watch its eggs get shot, I feel sad. Can you imagine, you know, maybe what feelings you would have had if um, it didn't look that way? Mm-hmm. You know, we might have been rooting for the bird at the end rather than the humanity. You know, it's like Rodan, the end of Rodan, where they're flapping over and, and he flies over to his mate or she flies to her, her mate and they're dying above the volcano. That's very tragic. Very, yeah, it really is. And, and Rodan doesn't look realistic, you know, but he doesn't look ridiculously unrealistic. True. Unless you think Rodan looks realistic. I don't know. Maybe you do. Well, I think he looked the best that he ever looked in the first film. Uh, every time Rodan showed up in any of the other Godzilla rallies, they, they changed his face to look pretty absurd as well. But no, you're right. You're right. Yeah, he started looking like a cartoon character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and one thing I, I want to add, you know, before we wrap up here yeah. is I did spend a lot of time researching La Cacagna. Okay. Which is, you know, supposedly the French Canadian myth about this some sort of devil monster bird that, you know, when you see it, you will then die. So I used Google Translate to try to find out what La Cacagna means. And because it was French Canadian and also Cacagna sounds Spanish, I searched for the French and Spanish translations as well as a bunch of others. And I want you to know that every single translation I did of La Cacagna comes out as the Cacagna. I actually thought maybe I would find something that maybe there was a La Cacagna or something. But, you know, kind of like a like a, a Bigfoot or something. But no, there 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 isn't. Yeah, it was all just made up for <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, I do enjoy the movie. And if listeners haven't seen it, I would recommend it. And yeah, you might have a laugh or two at, at some of the, the ridiculousness of it. But David nailed it. There is a poetry to some of the dialogue here. Some of the lines uh, that they swap back and forth, not just the kiss me and be quiet, but at one point when Mitch is told that he's the last surviving person to have actually seen the bird and lived. And what does he say? I'm the chief cook and bottle washer in a one man bird watcher society. Come on. That's great. That would be another drinking game where you have a drink for every minute that you can't figure out exactly what he's saying. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and if you're into the movies, you know, like this is part and parcel with a lot of the other Colombian movies, the Harryhausen movies. And as I said, the werewolf and the there's a great box set, you know, that Columbia put out 
which has got uh, the Zombies of Morotau, the Giant Claw, the Werewolf, and I can't remember the other one. It's wonderful. The quality of the movies is magnificent. You get to see the uh, kind of the inbreeding there, where, the, as I said, the scores came from the same music library, Columbia's music library. So you hear snatches of music from one picture that you do in the other. You know, music from the Giant Claw is also in It Came From Beneath the Sea and Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. There's stock footage that you can see from Earth vs. the Flying Saucers and the Giant Claw. And some of the crowd scenes, people say they're from Day the Earth Stood Still and they look like it. Like when the saucer first lands in Washington and Day the Earth Stood Still, I think I recognize some of that footage. It's kind of fun seeing bits and pieces of these other movies in there. They kind of all came from the same family. The Giant Claw, I think, is kind of like the what is it the 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 black duck duckling what it what is that phrase <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the ugly duckling, ugly duckling yeah. yeah you were saying but I was like black sheep that's not quite right but ugly duckling makes perfect sense yeah. exactly the giant claw is kind of the ugly duckling of these Columbia films but they're all they're all part of the same family and I think you love one you love them all the box said it looks like it's just got the four creature with the atom brain the giant claw zombies of Morotau, and the werewolf and they're all solid movies I mean I enjoy creature with the atom brain a lot but I'm a huge Richard Denning fan so you know sign me up and the werewolf I need to go back and revisit because I'm gonna have David on the show in the future to talk about that but the giant claw has been released on blu-ray in Germany so if you have a multi-region uh, blu-ray player you can pick it up that way. It's got two commentary tracks on it in German, but it's got two commentary tracks on it. Uh, and, and it looks pretty good. I, I would have to pull it out and compare it to the DVD that I have of it to see you know, what the transfer is like. But it was a pretty good transfer. I, I was pretty pleased with it. How do you translate Lacacanya into German? I will have to do that and see. Oh, wow. I have no idea. <laughs> no. Yeah. And repeating what you said is, it's a movie that's easy to make fun of, but it's also a movie that's easy to have fun watching. Yeah, yeah. This one makes me smile. This movie makes me grin from ear to ear. I'm invested in it. I dig it. I really had a good time talking about it with you, David. I'm, I'm glad we finally did it. It's been way too long, and I know you've had a lot on your plate, including contributing to a handful of the scripts from the Crypt books, which I love having your insight in these things because I'm a film score junkie. So to have anybody come in here and talk about the music from these films, I mean, it's it's perfect. I love it. Well, it's very nice. Uh, Tom Weaver does just a marvelous job in those scripts from the crypt. And I love his production notes and all that. It's just you learn stuff about these movies that makes the movies more fun mm -hmm. to watch. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they'll ever do a giant claw script from the crypt book. We need to talk to him about that. Maybe we should. Somebody should do it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd buy it. I'd buy it in a hot minute. Now, I talked to Tom at monster bash uh last month and we talked a lot about your contributions to these books and and how much i love having you your your words and, and your insights about music scores you know like i said i'm a film score junkie i collect this stuff i love it i can't play it i'm not a musician of any kind but i love to consume it so to have you in there in the mix man it just makes it even that much more enjoyable uh do you have anything coming up that we can tell listeners about anything in the works or anything like that well, I haven't been doing any music stuff for a few years. I've been, you know, working on books and I, you know, I just wrote a screenplay, which is kind of like a, I don't, it's not a parody. It's kind of taking a few 50 science fiction movies and let's just say using certain themes from them in a modern picture. It's very silly comedy, but I'm not doing a parody of okay. those movies. So it's kind of like, yeah, I like this thing from uh, Four-Sided Triangle. I like that thing from Cape Canaveral Monsters. 
let's use them in a modern comedy and see what happens. And, you know, so far I've gotten a good reaction to it. But, you know, selling a script is almost as improbable as creating a giant marionette puppet bird that looks like the giant claw. But <laughs> that did get made, so maybe mine will get made. <laughs> Yeah, more Monster Kid material in the world makes me a very happy Monster Kid myself. So I hope it does really well. Uh, I hope you continue to contribute to Tom's future books and anything else you've got in the works. I wish you the best, man. I really do. I can't believe we talked about the giant claw for, what, like an hour and ten minutes or something. You know, if we keep going, we're going to go longer than the film itself. So maybe we ought to stop while we're <laughs> I think so. And they'll call you in 10 minutes ago. But I forgot to mention this. I forgot to mention that. Save it for the next time when I have you on to talk about the werewolf. And this time we won't wait nearly as long. And it probably won't be nearly as fun. But well, you know. we'll come up with something. It's, it's a good movie. Definitely. That, it's a sad one. Anyway, let's stop talking. Yeah. We'll call that a tease. Yeah, we'll, that's our cliffhanger. Remember the best part of the werewolf was? And then, yeah. Okay. David, thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. Same here. I really had a great time. I know David said he hasn't done anything new with music lately, but that doesn't mean you can't add the CDs that he has done, that he has produced to your collection by heading over to mmmrecordings.com. Go check out Monstrous Movie Music, and you're going to find some great film scores to add to your collection. Go check it out. Let David know that you heard about him here on Monster Kid Radio. I'm very excited about this screenplay that he was telling me about. He told me a little bit more about it off mic, and I really hope it works out because it sounds just like a lot of fun. And I know he's got some other writing projects in the works too. I really hope it all turns out well because I love talking with David. I consider him a friend. And like I've said in the past, I love it when monster kids do good because that means more monster kid materials out there in the world for all of us to consume. David's one of the good ones. Thanks again, David, for being part of monster kid radio. And yeah, let's make sure we make a point to talk about the werewolf. Famous Monsters of Hollywood magazine names it Shock Award winner The Monster of Piedras Blancas The Monster of Piedras Blancas The world's most shocking monster Stalks its unsuspecting prey Feasts its eyes on the next victim to writhe in its slimy arms The screen's most nightmarish beast A claw-fingered, scaly-skinned, half-human crustacean, turning a lonely lighthouse village into a frenzied bedlam of blood-curdling horror. Never have you known such cringing terror, such... ...drawn by love to the forbidden cove of the sea monster, then trapped in a torment of unendurable suspense. In the screen monsterama of a thousand incredible... See the movie named the most brain-paralyzing shock story of them all, The Monster of Piedras Blancas. It's all new. The creature walks among us, more terrifying in human form. Striking at the heart of the city with inhuman fury. The creature walks among us. Horror unleashed by the daring of man and a dangerous experiment of science. I have burned away the outer scale. There's a structure of human skin underneath it. 
The creature walks among us. The grimmest cargo ever brought to civilization. Now a monster made even more frightful by human emotions. Plus Merle Oberon, Lex Barker in The Price of Fear. Two great thrill pictures on one program. Universe. This is Jason Jack Nettie from the Bots, Bugs, and Babes podcast, and I'm back with a classic five on the road once again. But this time, my dad's not going to be joining us. This time, I'm joined by the host of Earth Destruction Directive. That's my brother, Luke Jack Nettie. Hello, Luke. Hey, Jay. How are we doing today? Yeah, we're really good. We're going to do some classic five. All right. Let's bring it on. All right. Here we go. Question number one. What classic movie should have a sequel that did not? King Kong versus Godzilla. And King Kong vs. Godzilla actually was supposed to have a sequel with such a big hit for Toho that they announced a sequel titled very creatively, Continuation, King Kong vs. Godzilla, <laughs> that never got made. Oh my god, that's great. Uh, I didn't know and that. And they, they would use that later with Submersion of Japan. Mm-hmm. Submersion of Japan was such a hit, they announced a sequel called Continuation, Submersion of Japan, also never got made. I love the way they name movies. That's just great. Yes. <laughs> I love that. The, way. the funny part is, Dad and I were actually talking about this uh, when, when we, on the episode of Jason and the Argonauts. I said, man, at the end of the movie, they say, we have more adventures for Jason. And then they never made them. And I'm like, oh, yes, man, well. I want to see what happened to Jason. I want to see what happens to Hercules on the Island of uh, Bronze. I want to see what happens. So. It's just like Captain Cronus. Yes, Captain Cronus definitely should have been a series <laughs> of movies. You know, he gosh, he could have, uh, what do you call it? He could have fought the seven golden vampires. Yes, <laughs> that would have been pretty boss. Here we go. Question number two. What is your favorite Ray Harryhausen creation? Ooh, that's a tough one. Yeah, that's a tough one because I, I like quite a lot of them. And I like some of the more oddball ones, too. My favorite, It's got to be the dragon from the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. I always like dragons. And the fire-breathing effect, I think, is fantastic. It looks like a, a flamethrower, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, I've got to go with the dragon. Uh, the, if, if I could give a 1A, as it, it would be the Sons of the Hydra's Teeth, which I, I, I love skeletons, you know that. Uh, I loved Oob Iwerks, skeleton dance, since I was a little kid, so I always loved the skeletons, but i got to go with the dragon. It's classic. Yeah. Great-looking, classic, medieval-looking dragon from Harryhausen. I, I bet if you had a 1B, it would be the griffin. Well, the Griffin is more the Griffin is more of a thing I love as an adult because oh, okay. I, I was I got into Griffins more as I got older. But yeah, the Griffin is fantastic. Yeah, you know we talked about this on uh, on Bots, Bugs, and Babes uh, a long time ago with Dad when we did Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Is is what I like about the Griffin, much like the Centaur that it fights, is that it's got both of them have an extra set of limbs. Mm-hmm. They each have six limbs, so it's almost as if Harryhausen was upping the ante and challenging himself. Instead of two creatures with four limbs, I'm going to do two creatures with six limbs and have that much more to animate. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's spot on. I mean, that's why if you think about it in Jason, the Argonauts, the Golden Fleece is supposed to be guarded by a dragon, but Harryhausen changed it to a Hydra. Seven mm-hmm. heads, two tails. It's it's all about upping the ante. And that's the great. But that's one of the reasons why many people consider Jason and the Argonauts to be Harryhausen's greatest work ever. The amount of aerial work, the amount of the different creatures, how everything is so different. Um, and that yeah. actually has my favorite, which is Talos. I absolutely love Talos. Yes. So, well, Talos has, I think, the greatest you-know-what-just-got-real moment in yeah. cinema. Yeah. When he turns his head and looks, and it's like, yep, you know what? I'm out of here. Thank you for playing. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And that's just a you know classic. And, it, and as soon as the uh, when he cracks open the back of the heel and it's all pouring out, he's just grabbing his throat the the death screams without his mouth moving. It, it's disturbing and it's awesome and it's just <laughs> it's it's such great cinema. So great, great. Okay, ready for number three? Let's hit it. Okay, so you got to pick one: Bert I. Gordon or Roger Corman. Roger Corman. Uh, I like Bert I. Gordon. I love Mr. Big. I can never not like a guy who made a movie where ants fart on people and take their over their minds. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I, for one, welcome our new ant overlords. But Roger Corman just, you know, the, the Roger Corman school of filmmaking, light and getaway. He, he produced so much entertaining cinema on such a tight series of budgets and just made a lot of memorable uh, work, even though the quality would vary depending on how much money and how much time he had. I got to go with, with Roger Corman. He's yeah. a, he, he's beloved as a B movie auteur for a reason. Yeah. I think Corman in the grand scheme of things is more important to filmmaking than Bert. I uh, uh, Corman is more important than Bert. I Gordon. I think Bert. Yeah. I Gordon definitely hit people with some stuff sometimes when you're like, Oh, Okay, like I mean, I don't think you're ever bored during a Bird Eye Gordon film. No, but it's no. I mean, you know, you know what's what's funny is that like Amazing Colossal Man. Yeah, is you know overall not not a fantastic B picture, but it's never boring. No, it's it never moves boring. along. <laughs> it's like what? It's like okay, here we go. It's like you paid your you paid your money. Here's your picture. Yeah. You wanted to see a big dude run around in a diaper. So help me God, you will see a big dude run around in a diaper. I don't want to grow anymore. I'm a Toys R Us kid. The funny part being, of course, you know, if you think about it, like what War of the Colossal Beast, which is, yeah. you know, again, the, and oh, Glenn was th- 50 feet tall. Like there's a lot of 50 feet tall guys running around, lady. So anyway. All right. That's a good one. Oh, OK. Here's a tough one. Number four. Who's your favorite mummy? Oh, that is tough. That is tough. There's because, you know, there's a lot of good mummies out oh, yeah. there. If you just say to me, Luke, think of a mummy. The first one pops in my head is Karis as portrayed by Tom Tyler and Lon Chaney Jr. So um, I'm initially, and then later, of course, Christopher Lee. Mm-hmm. But Imhotep, especially, because I'm a big fan of the Stephen Summers mummy films, mm-hmm. and Arnold Vosloh's Imhotep is fantastic. To me, he's one of the best villains of that era, the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, just of a villainly in general, you know, genre film or otherwise. Mm-hmm. But, you know, traditionally, I always think of Karis dragging his foot and choking the you-know-what out of people, uh, I got to go with Karis. Well, that that's a tough one, though, yeah. because uh, Karis and Imhotep are both legends for a good reason. I, I never figured out, like, a headcanon way to do it. But if so- if Summers had actually made the third Mummy film instead of, uh, I don't remember who directed uh, Curse of the Dragon Emperor, but it wasn't Stephen Summers. Right. If Summers had directed it, could they have worked Karis in? And had maybe Karis and Imhotep right. maybe fighting or instead of Imhotep or something like that. I, I always tried to think of like, okay, maybe instead of, you know, because Karis basically gets Imhotep's origin because, right, you know, right, it, right, it's right. been a few years. Nobody's going to remember, right? Yeah, well. So I was thinking, well, instead of doing that, maybe make Karis like a, a soldier or maybe he was a Magi that got, you know, turned into a mummy or something. or So, right. so just make him more physical of a threat than um, Imhotep, who was always a magical threat in those uh, Summers films. Yeah. But unfortunately, that, like I said, uh, Dragon Emperor uh, went in a different direction. Not not a bad movie, just different from That's the other one. Yeah, right. I mean, they used the Scorpion King, and unfortunately, at the end of the movie, they had The Rock actually look like part Scorpion, bad CGI kind of thing there. Instead of making him actually just a man, which, which is, you know, Dwayne Johnson coming out, 
that would be a place where they could have Kaharis could have been that could have been that guy. I mean, there's no reason it had to be called the Scorpion King. He could, right. could have been Kaharis there too. You know, he's yeah. not a mummy, you know, I guess. You know, kind of thing. Well, you know what's funny is that that um, you know that was the that was Dwayne Johnson's debut on film. Yes. yes. Now you take that and you make that movie later on in his career. Of course. When it's not, oh look, look at that wrestler is making a movie. It's like, oh look, the the biggest movie star in the world is making a movie. Then he comes out at the end, just all buffed up, wearing some gold armor, and then that ending goes in a completely different yeah. direction. And, and then you feel because, both, uh, you know, Arnold Vosloh and uh, Brendan Fraser going, uh oh. You know <laughs> Arnold so. Vosloh has the greatest reaction in cinematic history in that scene. Yeah. When. Brandon Fraser's Rick O'Connell stabs the Scorpion King with the Golden Scepter, and he just runs onto the frame and goes, no! <laughs> that is the greatest. I love Arnold Boslow. I, oh. really, I say that. He is, the, he is great. Yeah. He is great in everything. One of the great character actors of our day. All right. So if that one was hard, I have even a harder question for you. Favorite Godzilla suit of all time? Favorite Godzilla suit of all time. Well, two spring to mind immediately. Mm-hmm. And it's probably some of the ones you're thinking of. Uh, of course, uh, Godzilla 62 from King Kong versus Godzilla, which is iconic. Oh, yeah. But then Godzilla 89 from the Bio Godzilla suit from Godzilla versus Biolanti, which is the definitive, to me, Heisei Godzilla suit. I mean, uh, you got to also, of course, throw, uh, the original Godzilla 54 is just, you know, classic, uh, just, you know, you, for pure menace. And I'm a big fan of Godzilla 64 because 60, the 64 suit from uh, Godzilla vs. the Thing it was also used in Gator the Three-Headed Monster and modified to make the suit that's used in Monster Zero, which were Gator and Monster Zero, of course, were my favorites as a, as yeah, a kid. Yeah, yeah. So, mm, favorite Godzilla suit of all time. The way I got to think of this, if I could have, like, one really big-scale Godzilla <laughs> I, I, $300 falls into my lap and a big scale Godzilla vinyl right. is allowed to come into my house. Who would I get? Hmm. That is really tough because I do. I, I, I always tend to lean back towards the Showa films over the Heisei and even the Millennium films. Uh, I got to go with Godzilla 1962. It's a classic, yeah, it's classic with his arms flapping out to the side and the, the, the real narrow kind of head. You know, he looks like he has a tiny brain in that movie, but it's, yeah. It, it's such a great look because also it, it's one of the things that's so iconic about that suit is that it was the first time we saw Godzilla in color. And, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, that, that's the right, color, right. color helps King Kong versus Godzilla so much. You don't you don't think about it because, you know, when we were growing up, uh, all of course, all the films were in color, you know, in right. the growing up in the in the 80s, you know, it, it was just understood. But then when you watch them chronologically, I've been slowly kind of working through the early show ones uh, with the kids. And so watching Godzilla and then Godzilla raids again and then moving to King Kong versus Godzilla. It's just night and day, the depiction oh, yeah, 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 yeah. of the creature. And it, and it changes him in so many fundamental ways, uh, just being in color. So I got to go with Godzilla 62. It's a classic. It's beloved for a reason. Uh, tellingly, in the uh, very popular SH Monster Arts uh, mm-hmm. toy line, that is the only Showa Godzilla they've made is Godzilla yeah. 62. They oh, haven't yeah. even made a Godzilla 54. Mm-hmm. So... That's, you know, so you know there's got to be somebody out there looking to buy. So yeah. <laughs> got to go with 62 on that one. But, you know, I could you could make an argument for just about for a lot of the Godzilla yeah. suits being being, I you know, just just classic. Yeah, I'm, I'm always partial to the I mean, again, I love the ones in the 60s and, you know, and, and stuff going to be in the classic look to them. 
But I mean, I was loved. Was it GMK, right? Where he has the, where he has the white eyes. Yes. And he's just, yeah. he just looks like a killing machine. Like it's just he's so, so bulky in that. Yeah. Piece. He's just yeah. big and bad. That's why I, I just love that look. Those Godzillas of that, the, the Godzillas of that time were very different than the Godzillas we had in, in the sixties and seventies. You know, the, the, like you said, the Heisei and the Showa and the Millennium, they're all so different than each other, but they yeah. all work so well in their movies. Yeah, well, you know, and, and you know what's what's interesting is that I, I was actually watching, I'm not going to say what, but I was watching a Millennium Godzilla film earlier today for my show, and I was struck at one point by they had a really good shot of the rod and cable driven head puppet, right? And I was thinking it's like wow, just just something simple like that. If they could have done something like that, what would that the Showa films had looked like? Yeah, yeah. Because Godzilla didn't have a rod and cable driven head until. Uh, 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 1984, Return of Godzilla, right. Godzilla 1985 here in the States, which is another great suit oh, yeah. that was then su- superseded by the Biogoji yeah. suit. I mean, you met the Godzilla 84 suit has got the, you, you talk about GMK having the white eyes. Mm-hmm. There, you know, in, in Godzilla 84, when he picks up the reactor, yeah. and he's just got that dead thousand, thousand yard stare. Right, it's yeah. like, this guy's not fooling around. <laughs> he, 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 it's like, remember when he was fighting Geigen? Yeah, that's gone. You can forget about that now. There's no silliness anymore, right? Exactly. Yeah. This is this is not Godzilla. Used, this is not the Godzilla it used to be. This is the guy who laid waste to Tokyo before Raymond Burr was shoved into it kind of thing. This is a... Uh, well, you know what? I always, I always say this. I, I, we talk about this on Earth Destruction Directive sometimes, is that, you know, as you know, people always... One of the things you always get is like, oh, what was the first Godzilla film you saw, if you're a Godzilla fan? And mine was Godzilla King of the Monsters. Oh, yeah. So... Even watching the later ones where Godzilla was a heroic monster, in the back of my mind, it's always like, you know, he's helping you now, but this guy laid waste to your entire country. Right, yeah. It's like, maybe you should try and stay on his good side. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, he's the king of the monsters for a reason. It's like, yeah, King Ghidorah is pretty bad. Godzilla almost burned your entire island to the ground. Just saying. So, you know, it's one of those that eventually he's going to get tired of helping you guys out. Yeah. So. All right. <laughs> well, Luke, that was the classic five. How do you feel? I feel fantastic. I'm glad I can contribute. You know, uh, you know, sometimes on doing these these genre podcasts that we do, sometimes you get uh, kind of pigeonholed into talking about one thing. Mm-hmm. But you know me, I mean, I'm I'm eclectic. I always embrace all sorts of different things. So I can talk about just about any ridiculous topic you want. And uh, have a good time with it because I, I've always said I, I like to know a little bit about a lot of stuff and try to learn as much as I can. And uh, there's a you know and, and know a lot about a few things and a little about a lot of things. So I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So so Monster Key Universe, thank you very much for letting us come on here. And as my brother always says, keep them stomping. And as I always say, keep watching the skies. Thanks, guys. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jason Jacanetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me.
the Monster Marathon. Now all in one gigantic show. Three of the newest and most exciting monster hits starring Earth champion and protector Godzilla. First, thrill the Godzilla Monster Island with more monsters than have ever appeared on the screen at one time. Then it's the action-packed Godzilla versus the Cosmic Monster. And finally, the classic Godzilla versus Megalon. All three in one colossal show. Rated G. Hi Derek and all you Monster Kid Radio fans, this is Gary Johnson talking live from G-Fest 2018 and I'm hosting the Midnight Monster Movie Madness panel where we'll be showing the movie Insectula. If you're at G-Fest, I hope you'll join me and if not, have a monster of a day. Hey Derek, this is Pete coming to you live from G-Fest in Chicago, Illinois. So sorry you're not here. We are having an absolute blast We've been in the dealer's room, spending way too much money. The artist's room, again, too much money. I'm playing a little pinball with the spooky pinball fellas. Ran into Kyle Yount of the Kaiju cast. Jessica Sang from Kaiju Kingdom. It's a podcast jamboree here. So thank you so much for everything that you do. I can't wait to hear your very next podcast. Good luck to you. Signing off. Hey, Derek and MKR listeners. This is Brian Clark from Attack of the Killer podcast. And this is Isabella Clark. Uh, we're checking in here from G-Fest. Uh, uh, earlier this weekend, I presented a panel on horror in kaiju films. Uh, we've been having a great time here. I uh, ran into Kyle Yount and the guys from Monster Party. And uh, someday, I certainly hope to see you here too, Derek. It would be uh, great to get to meet in person. So uh, have a great week, everybody. And uh, thanks for listening to MKR. Hey, Derek. Monster Kid Radio listeners, this is Mark Bailey of the New York City Giant Monster Attack Map, recording from G-Fest. And I just did my presentation, Giant Monsters Attack New York City, a history. It seems to have gone pretty well, and I think people liked it. They asked lots of questions. And last night I had my short film screened. It came from the East River, and I actually won an amateur award. So I was very tickled pink with that. All right, Derek, I uh, hope you guys are doing well. And listeners, please come to G-Fest someday. You're going to have a great time. Bye-bye. Our planet may be doomed. Our Earth devastated. The monsters are in revolt. And civilization is in chaos. Godzilla is laying waste to New York. Rodan is attacking Moscow. Manda is smashing London. And Peking trembles under the wrath of Mothra. Our battle cry must be, destroy all monsters. Who can say which country or city will be next? We must unite and destroy all monsters. Is there a way to defend against Godzilla, Rodan, Manda, and Mothra? The answer is no. Let our battle cry be, destroy all monsters. Be prepared. See for yourself in color from American International. Destroy all monsters. Monster. 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 This picture is rated G for general audiences. Destroy all monsters. Monster. 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 Monstrous animals crawl out of crater of volcano. Great herds of cattle stampede before this living inferno. Vast area devastated by appalling new horror. A creature named the Black Scorpion by panic-stricken people of San Lorenzo. Entire population prays for deliverance. For miles around, 
cowboys came upon one dead steer after another. One of them had heard the tale of the demon bull of the Maricopa, having lost family or friends, something absolutely unknown. We could be in another world. Nation's leaders confer as news received a possible threat to capital. This is a city of four million people. If word of these leaks out, the panic of the population could be worse than the scorpions. The black scorpion destroys communications. Hundreds annihilated. scale never achieved before by any science fiction picture. Thousands in the cast. Look! It's coming! Where did it come from? Monster attack San Francisco. Golden Gate Bridge ripped from towers. Skyscrapers topple. Our city may be next. See Columbia Pictures. It came from beneath the sea. Derek and the Monster Kids, this is Jeff Pullier calling with a weird Wednesday report. This Wednesday at the Joy Cinema was Monster Roulette, which means that an audience member picked a movie name from a Halloween pumpkin, and that's what Jeff played for us. And the movie he played was How to Make a Monster. Now, I've never seen that before, like most weird Wednesday things, and with a title like that, I expected something pretty funny. And no, this was a serious movie, and it was a really, honestly good movie. It was uh, suspenseful. It seems like, to me, kind of an heir to House of Wax, in that it was someone who loved his trade in making, you know, monsters, or in the case of House of Wax, the figurines. And then he's betrayed, loses his livelihood in one way or another. And I on revenge spree and in this case he does it by manipulating two of the actors that he got four films one of them is a teenage wolf band one is a teenage frankenstein monster and he you know kind of drugs them into being monstrous and going out and killing people but then not remembering it so it's not on their consciences and man it was just it was really well done it was well acted uh, the makeup was actually great. Whoever actually did the makeup for this movie deserved some major kudos, because they were great. Uh, it is weird that the movie starts off in black and white and finishes in color. I had read on IMDb that was going to happen, and it was kind of surprising. Still, just all of a sudden, bam, you're in a world of color. It's like going to Oz. Um, 
to appreciate that every time they refer to Frankenstein's monster as Frankenstein's monster, they never just called it Frankenstein. I like that. Anyway, yeah, it was just, it, I, I can't recommend this movie enough. Uh, next time there's a uh, Monster Kid Radio Top 100 Monster Movies, that's going to be one of my picks. I hope you're having a great day, and I'll talk to you again real soon. Oh, man, Jeff, that is so cool that you got to see How to Make a Monster for the first time on the big screen. That, that's amazing. This is a wonderful film. Now, there are two films before this in a kind of sort of series, I guess you could call it a series, maybe quite, uh, I don't know. I was a teenage werewolf and I was a teenage Frankenstein, or just teenage Frankenstein, depending on which version of the film you're watching. Unfortunately, those two movies are not available in home media right now. They, they were at one point released on VHS way back in the day, but they've never had a DVD or Blu-ray release. And to actually see them in a movie theater setting, well, whoever's going to show them has to jump through certain hoops because the person who owns the rights to those films is holding on to them pretty tightly. I, at one point, did start communicating with the people that own the rights to those two films and just things didn't quite work out. However, How to Make a Monster is not owned by the same party, so you get a little bit of Teenage Werewolf and Teenage Frankenstein in the mix. You commented on how How to Make a Monster turns a color at the end. Teenage Frankenstein does this as well, and I don't think it happens in Teenage Werewolf. I don't think so. That was actually the first film in the run. I love all three of those movies. They're, they're fantastic, and I'm so happy that you enjoyed the movie so much and you got to see it on the big screen. Thanks for always calling in the Weird Wednesday Report, Jeff. And one of these days, I'm going to get myself back to Weird Wednesday so I can see a movie with you at the Joy Cinema. Hidden within each of us is a secret desire to destroy. Each of us would like to be able to become the other being, to know the master makeup artist's magic. How to make a monster. Broadway stellar performer Robert H. Harris brings to this theater the most terrifying of men, a man whose mind is distorted by hatred. I'll use the very monsters they mock to bring them to an end. This maniacal strength will linger in your arms and hands, and with it you'll destroy your real enemies, exactly as I instruct you. autopsy findings, I would say that he was attacked from behind by someone with fiendish strength. So what do we have to do? Look for a monster? We're not talking about actors. We mean a real monster. Behind the scenes in Hollywood's wonderland of make-believe where pretty girls parade their pulchritude, terror stalks with the stealthy steps of death. <laughs> And death following death permeates the very air you breathe with horror. Mr. Monster Maker of Maveland sells his talents to the devil. I have a great honor to bestow upon you. I intend to add you two to my collection. You want your wall? As real as I can get them. See the Master Monster Maker's Chamber of Horrors in color. How to Make a Monster. C-3PO. Loki. 
Mace Windu, Dr. Bruce Banner, Captain Rex, Venom, Princess Leia, Jean Grey, Darth Maul, Nick Fury, Grand Moff Tarkin, Captain America, Lando Calrissian, Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Hindu, Podcast. Syndrome, Even after five years, we're Bella. still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. I say there are things better left unsolved. Who knows what waits for us in nature's no man's land? Impossible, unbelievable, fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. It could happen. It could happen. It could happen. Yes, it could happen. For various authorities believe that buried somewhere under the polar ice cap, in a state of suspended animation, are the awesome creatures, the leviathans that roamed the earth at the dawn of time. And under certain conditions, a nuclear explosion could free one from his icy tomb. Then, guided by instinct, the beast would come back, back to the caverns of the deepest Atlantic where it was spawned, an armored giant wreaking his prehistoric fury on modern man and his puny machines. Cities would be terrorized by the cruel intruder from the past. Populations crazed and panicked with fear by its destructive force. Granite and steel would crumble. Soldiers and their weapons would be powerless before the onslaught of the beast. The beast. The beast. The beast from 20,000 fathoms. Herald Square, 34th Street. Broadway. Every section of the city is guarded. No one knows where the monster will strike next. Another one, Colonel? No. You know what the radioactive isotope is? No, but if it can be loaded, I can fire it. I'll load it. Just remember one thing. This is the only isotope of its kind this side of Oak Ridge, so you can't miss.
The man they are burying in a subterranean world of horror is a victim of the oblong box. Now, for the first time, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee star in Edgar Allan Poe's tale of the living dead, the oblong box. The oblong box in color from American International is rated M. Let me start by saying I'm feeling a little bit smart, which I shouldn't be. I had to call in sick to work today um, because I was feeling really terrible. My RA is really flared up um, and I slept till three, which is awful. I hate losing my day, but I am feeling a little better. And Derek is stressed out about leaving um, on his trip. And so I was trying to think of what I could do that would reduce the amount of time he needs to spend on the show. And I thought, hey, I could record the monster vaults while he's at work. So I found the monster vault text. I opened an audacity file. I, what else did I, oh, I put the new, I put the new fuzzy on the microphone because I ripped the last one, but I couldn't find this little window that he pops up to adjust sound. So I adjusted it on the um, what do you call this? A mixer, maybe? And I am worried that I just screwed everything up. But my levels look like they're sounding okay. So we'll see. And I memorized where the button was before. So that if I really mess things up, hopefully I can reset them. So let me pull up the text for the Monster Vault. Vault of Monster Collectibles number 8, written by Michael Dodd. Horror Monsters Grab Bag, Best Plastics Corp, 1960s. In the 60s, a kid could score some awesome stuff for a nickel. A big candy bar, a bag of gum cards, or a horror monster grab bag. These little bags contained two monster toys, a bonus toy, and candy. But perhaps the best part of the whole thing was the cool little bag with the Killer Monster Kid graphics. The front of the bag featured the title logo, 5 cent prize, King Kong at the top ripping his way through the jungle, and the Frankenstein monster and Dracula leering menacingly at the kid about ready to plunk down his nickel. At the bottom were the words, you get two monsters, one super toy, plus candy. The back of the bag listed the candy ingredients and the words privilege to examine before purchasing, as well as Best Plastics Corp, Brooklyn 20, New York. Well, NY. The two monster toys were nearly flat figures made by Best Plastics, which were either monsters, cavemen, or dinosaurs. It should be noted that dinos were marketed as monsters in the 60s because popular kid culture viewed them that way. By the way, I'm a big dino kid as well as a monster kid, and some of the later VOMC episodes will feature dino-centric items, especially toys. There were five different best plastics monster figures, which included the Frankenstein monster, Dracula, King Kong, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and a Wolfman, 
which some mistook for a hunchback because it was sculpted after the three-inch Palmer Wolfman figurine. As a matter of fact, all five of the best monster flats, in quotes, were sculpted after Palmer monsters, and for years, most collectors have called them Palmer flats, even though they were made by best plastics. The two best cavemen figures were sculpted after Mark's cavemen, one with a rock held overhead and one holding a club in one hand. The best dino figures numbered 14 in total and were sculpted after Mark's and Ajax figures of the day. Even though the horror monster's grab bags sold in abundance in the 60s, they are a bit scarce these days. Expect to pay around $50 to $80 for a grab bag with original contents, although rarely they do sell in the $30 to $40 range when a seller lists them in an eBay auction with a low minimum bid. It just depends on who's in the market for one at auction time. Some collectors have fond memories of the grab bags and don't mind paying up. If you're looking for one and don't mind waiting a while, then a good deal can be had. Save those eBay searches and be ready to pounce. Sometimes just the bag itself is offered for sale and one in excellent condition can fetch $20 to $40 and sometimes more. The best monster flats are pretty common in the marketplace but still sell for $5 to $15 each depending on if they are in the more common glossy plastic in common colors or the flat lead-based plastic that sold earlier in the 60s and also whether they are sold in a group or singly. The cavemen figures sell for around the same as the monsters and turn up about as frequently. They were probably part of the same mold group as the monsters, but I'm not sure about that. The best plastics dinosaurs are even more scarce than the monsters and tend to sell in the $10 to $20 range when they ever turn up. The dinos would undoubtedly sell for much more due to scarcity, but more collectors are after the best monster figures. It's believed that there were many warehouse finds of the monsters and cavemen figures in the 80s and 90s, which led to them still being plentiful in the marketplace. A veteran dealer slash collector told me that there was a small warehouse find of the full grab bags a few years ago, which probably accounts for most of the ones that turn up currently. He said those bags all had two green best dinos, another random cheap toy, and sour luck candies in them. And the two bags I have, and all the ones I've seen for sale in the last few years, fit that description. Remember, in the 60s, dinosaurs were considered monsters, and they were marketed that way to kids. Also, there are so many of the best plastic monster figures for sale these days that some collectors believe they were repopped in the 80s and 90s. The plastic on most of them does look new and shiny as opposed to the flat-looking plastic from the 60s made with a lead-based paint. Common colors for them are pink, blue, and yellow though you do see them in other colors too. As far as I know, the best plastics molds didn't turn up to be repopped, like the Mark's Monster molds, Nutty Mad molds, and NPC Pop Top molds, but I can't be sure about that. The reason the best monster flats are so plentiful now is probably because Best made so many of them in the 60s and possibly into the 70s, and the warehouse finds of the 90s flooded the marketplace so heavily that they are still common. As a kid in the mid to late 60s, 
and the ones I bought back then had either monster or caveman figures as the two monsters. Maybe the inclusion of the dino figures as the two monsters came a little later, like possibly into the late 60s and early 70s. The only best pieces I still have from the 60s are the purple caveman, red caveman, and the three red monsters in the flat lead-based plastic. Frankenstein monster, Dracula, and King Kong. Everything else in my Best Plastics Horror Monsters grab bag collection was purchased either from Topshop ads in the 90s or from eBay later on. I tell you though, those bags have such wonderful graphics and the figures bring back such great memories. I'm just glad this stuff is still circulating for us to enjoy looking at and fueling the good memories. Picks this week include a close-up of one of my horror monster grab bags, along with the contents to one side, and another pick of my best plastics collection. Still need another Smilodon to have a complete set. Next episode, we cover all things NPC Pop Top Horrors, including the different packaging and a detailed look at the weird sculpts that are burned into our monster kid brains. Dig it! Ooh, and I like because I like that I found these because I can look at the pictures. Huh. I see the dinosaurs. <laughs> King Kong at the top. Man, kid toys were so cool back then. Why is there a peanut? There's oh, look at all those. I don't understand the peanut. Hmm. Well, hey, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for listening and for tagging along and sticking it out. Like I said, I know this episode was a battleship of an episode. Lots to get through, and uh, man, it was a lot of fun to put together. A couple of notes I want to share with everybody. Mark Bailey, the man who put together the G-Fest segments for us, he won an award at G-Fest for his short film, It Came from the East River. Head over to foxtrotstudios.net, and you can see this short animated film, and you can say that you've seen an award-winning movie produced by your fellow monster kid. I think it's amazing. Mark, congratulations. I'm proud of you, buddy. That is so cool that you won an award for that film. I can't wait to see what the next movies are. I love your animations. I want to see the next one and the one after that and the one after that. Anyway, head over to foxtrotstudios.net to check that out. Big thanks to Jason and Luke for contributing the Classic Five segment. They are both podcasters whose podcasts are part of the Two True Freaks network over at twotruefreaks.com. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast as well as the Bots, Bugs, and Babes. And I probably will have already played the promo for the Bots, Bugs, and Babes podcast earlier in this episode. But again, there will be a link in the show notes for you to check that out as well. Of course, special thanks to Brenda for being part of the episode Several weeks after the fact, <laughs> we got one email, but with everything going on, just we weren't able to record a separate feedback segment in this week's episode. We will next time around, though, so stay tuned for that. That's coming up. I keep talking about everything that's going on with me, and I 
don't want to sound like a broken record, and I hate to bore you guys and gals with it, but I'm unemployed now. Uh, as of the beginning of July, I found myself separated from the company. Those were the words that I were used when I received the phone call. And so life has been different. Financially, things are changing dramatically. And job-wise, I'm trying to find some things that keep me working around the home, doing things that I actually care about, being a creative and creating person as opposed to doing customer service or sales or retail. All the things that I've done in the past leading up to this, I'd like to leave that in the past because at this point, it's time to take things to whatever that fabled next level is. Why do I bring it up here on Monster Kid Radio all the time? Well, I know that podcasting is not a quote-unquote career. That said, I want to thank everybody who's been contributing to Monster Kid Radio through our Patreon campaign. There will be a change to the Patreon campaign happening sometime next month. Call it Patreon. We are going to change some of the tiers, some of the rewards. Might take some of the rewards away that I haven't really been able to fulfill anyway and replace them with new tiers and, and bonuses that everybody gets if we get to a certain level, like a premium podcast. That's uh, a tease. It's coming though. And I, I really am excited about bringing that into existence. Anyway, all I'm saying is thanks for helping to support me and Monster Kid Radio through the Patreon campaign. I've also received a couple of orders for the Classic 5 game. I have the home version here. And just so people know, if people are interested in this, drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And I'll let you know how you can submit your payment for your very own deck of the classic five cards. The 75 card core deck costs $15. The Hammer Films expansion, the Universal Films expansion, and the Monster Batch expansion are $5 each. And shipping here in the US is only $3. Drop me a line either on Facebook or by email and I'll let you know how you can submit your payment. Speaking of email, if you want to email the show, monsterkidradio at gmail.com is the way to do it. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail by calling 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. That's how Jeff Pullier called in the Weird Wednesday Report. If you are at a convention or at a show or are doing something Monster Kid flavored, well, feel free to call in and let us know how it's going. Upcoming events, Monster Kid Radio-wise. There's a Monster Kid Radio crash or two in the works. I don't have anything formally set up yet. However, I know that within the next few weeks, Creature from the Black Lagoon will be playing in the Portland area, in the Pacific Northwest, a couple of times. I'd like to get out to those. Also, the Hollywood Theater here in Portland is doing what they call the Marathon of the Apes, and you know what that's about. They're going to be showing all eight Planet of the Apes movies. I'm going to pause for a moment so you can do the math and add them all up. Yes, we all know that there are actually nine because of the Tim Burton film. However, and I'm paraphrasing from the Hollywood Theater's website, they're pretending that one didn't happen. Uh, what's going to happen is the Hollywood is going to show the original franchise and then the three new films. Now, they're not doing it all over the course of like one or two days. It is being scattered amongst the calendar throughout the summer. And I would love to make sure I get to at least two or three of them. I love this franchise. I love these films. And to be able to see them at the Hollywood would be a blast. There is the possibility that I will be having surgery next month, though. So I don't know how that's going to impact things next month. Well, 
Next month is Edgar August Poe here on Monster Kid Radio, where we're going to be talking about Edgar Allan Poe films, adaptations, movies that reference Edgar Allan Poe. And I already have two of those episodes in the can. I've got a third one scheduled later on this month. Uh, I actually think I have another one scheduled here in a couple of days. Anyway, we're going to have at least four episodes of Edgar Allan Poe fun or madness here on Monster Kid Radio. I'm scrambling to get as many of them in the virtual can as I can, because if I am having surgery, well, I don't know how much I'm going to want to talk on the mic. And it's nothing life-threatening, guys and gals. I, <laughs> it's a deviated septum thing that needs to be corrected, as well as a nasal valve reconstruction, which sounds, well, I'm going to talk about it in an upcoming YouTube video. Let's just leave it at that. Speaking of YouTube, please consider subscribing to the Monster Kid Radio on YouTube YouTube channel just by going to youtube.com slash monsterkidradio. There's a link to that at our website as well at monsterkidradio.net. I want to thank everybody for sticking around through this long-winded outro. I did not mean to start babbling on, on, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on. Anyway, let's wrap up. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original. Hey, I didn't tell you what's coming up next week. Why don't we talk about that real quick? <laughs> next week, the final week of July. You know, it's hot. It's really hot. In Portland the other day, it was 101 degrees. It's warm, and that's not cool, man. So how am I going to cool off? Well, I'm going to pretend it's wintertime. I'm going to pretend it's Christmas. And next week, it's Christmas in July when we talk about a Laurel and Hardy film here on the show, Babes in Toyland, also known as March of the Wooden Soldiers. Here they come. Call out the guard. Break out the colors. Summon the Marines. Hasten the Royal Musicians. Thousands upon thousands of musicians. Strike up the band. <laughs> film with Steve Turek. That's going to be interesting. It's something a little outside the box, but not quite. There are monsters in the film. You're going to have to come back next week to hear what that's all about. All right. 
Now we're done. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Shipwrecks. That belongs to the band Surfer Rex from their album Strange Salvage. You can pick up the digital album Strange Salvage over at surferrex.bandcamp.com for four bucks. Go check them out and let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Tarek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.